troubles on the Channel Zero Network, a network of several anarchist and anti-authoritarian podcasts across so-called North America. Listen at ChannelZeroNetwork.com. You are tuned into Twin Trouble, a podcast about abolition and revolution. We are twins. We like trouble. And that's what we're going to talk about today, some trouble. Trouble against the system. I'm Jason. I'm Jeremy. And we are... Twin Twin Trouble! In this episode, we are pleased to have a chat with esteemed Harvard professor and historian of Anonymous, Gabriella Coleman, on current affairs and hacktivism and whistleblowing. We are also going to talk a bit about Jan 6, the first anniversary of the right-wing insurrection having just passed earlier this month. We'll discuss the state of MAGA and their cries of persecution and political prisoners with regard to the ongoing criminal cases and congressional investigations into the failed coup attempt. We'll also talk briefly about our anti-fascist video game Smash MAGA, Trump Zombie Apocalypse. We just released a new multiplayer version, so check that out. Lastly, we also interviewed a member of the band La Armada, whose music we feature on this episode. Let's get into it. We have a special guest today, Gabriella Coleman. Many of you know her as Biella. We go way back. Thank you for coming on the podcast. Welcome. How have you been? Well, it's great to be here. I'm, I'm in Montreal for one last day before moving to the States tomorrow. Wow, it's been a minute. I know uh, you've obviously covered Anonymous. Uh, you're a very highly respected and accomplished person, not just with your university work. You've done books, articles, podcasts about hackers, everything, technology, ethics, activism. So we want to ask you, uh, you know, in light of you know, recent events, but how has so much of the media coverage about Anonymous and hackers in general, how do they get it so wrong? Like, how? Yeah, I mean, so first, I think it's important to note that there are journalists and others who definitely do get it right, you know, and it's um, those that really decide that they want to go deep, you know, and, and really dive in and talk to a lot of people. Um, those who kind of get it wrong, um, what often happens is that they kind of glom onto like one or two individuals, right? The individuals that are kind of willing to work with the journalists Maybe they're kind of over-inflate their role um, in this is with anonymous, with anonymous, right? And when you have like a source like that, you know, it's hard to refuse. And, and what happens um, in the case of anonymous, which is, you know, this very distributed, decentralized collective of collectives, um, a journalist will sort of portray anonymous is having either a leader or just a couple of people who are the single movers and shakers, right? And so if you're just relying on one person, well, you're going to get a lot wrong. So that's that's one of the problems with with anonymous. In terms of of hackers, I mean, you know, I guess just there's a lot of sort of misconceptions around you know, addiction and hacking, criminality and hacking. And there is just, I think, journalists, you know, are trying to kind of oversell a sensationalist story. But, you know, there's definitely a crop of them that have been working on the technology beat and, and, and don't fall into the, these sorts of traps. Right. That's an interesting point you had met, uh, said about how the media kind of like wants to fixate on personalities uh, so they could like maybe sell like a human interest story, uh, like and in specifically with the case of anonymous, right? I mean, there could never be a leader or a founder. You know, obviously the whole idea of you know it's decentralized, it's leaderless. 
Uh, and so for like the news to like really like pick somebody and kind of uh, someone who's self-appointed and, and you know we're kind of beating around the bush here we're talking very specifically about <laughs> Kartner right I mean, like the coverage there's been uh, numerous articles in the past couple months uh, the Atlantic uh, a few others that uh, kind of um, you know the guy outed himself named himself and declared himself like a, a self-appointed founder or whatever and is like kind of soliciting these uh, media interviews and um, it causes all kinds of controversy and stuff uh, I just want to know what your thoughts on it were yeah so um I mean, <clears throat> I, have we named any names? Maybe we don't need to name any names. But um, yeah, recently in, in 220, um, someone came forward who, you know, was very, very much involved in the early history of Anonymous, the, the, the trolling era, right? When Anonymous was used for ultra-coordinated motherfuckery as, as, as it went back then. And often causing a lot of pain and grief in, in the process. And so recently someone came forward, uh, Kurt Tanner, who was very involved, very important in that trolling era. And, um, and there's no reason to kind of doubt his, his role. He had a lot of documentation. He uh, founded a board called 420chan, and there was an invasion board, and the invasion boards is where a lot of these trolling raids came off. But you know, he kind of over-portrayed himself as a kind of leader, founder of Anonymous. And then there was a, a very big article in The Atlantic that featured him. And the article itself was, was careful not to portray him as the single leader, founder, although it's so overwhelmingly focused on him, it kind of catapulted him into the limelight. And there were some tweets that kind of mentioned he was a founder. And all of a sudden, it just kind of took off. Like, people went with it. It was it was repeated on places like NPR Marketplace. You know, I even contacted the journalist, and I was like, well, that's not quite right. He never <laughs> responded to me. And it's, it's just ridiculous because, again, um, you know, there are movements where you could identify founders, right? The free software movement. Richard Stallman. He had an idea, he created a nonprofit. And even then, you know, the the movement itself went far beyond him, right? It was only possible because of sharing uh, the Unix source code or something like that. But with something like Anonymous, um, whether it's the troll era or the hacktivist era, there were so many different groups, so many different boards. And just the ways that operations, whether it was the trolling operations or the hacktivist operations, came into being, right? Like trying to kind of locate one individual as like the progenitor and generator of everything is, is almost ludicrous, you know? Um, but again, it's, it's, it's just easier to tell a story with a single person, right? And... And a charismatic, you know, Kurtan is very charismatic, right? Um, he'll talk to you for a very long time. So uh, it's, it's just easier to go that way. I mean, what are your thoughts? I mean, you're, you're involved in Anonymous, right? So. Um, yeah, you know, I've, uh, well, for one, you know, I'm definitely not involved in all with uh, the day-to-day -day stuff about Anonymous anymore. I'm definitely not even allowed to. Oh, no, um, no, not at all. Right. So I'm just you definitely. Were, you were once. Yeah. I mean, and again, like the whole thing about it is it's a very fluid 
uh, phenomenon that's made up of multiple people and multiple movements and ideologies and stuff like that. So you can't really, like, one person can't be considered an expert in this regard. Uh, as far as Kurtner, you know, uh, I never even heard of him. He was definitely never around when any of the work that, you know, the people were doing during my era. Uh, I've heard of some of the things he's claimed to have done. And uh, to be honest, I'm not even really all that impressed because I, I didn't think any of that, most of the stuff that he was involved with really contributed in, in any sense to the evolution of Anonymous in any positive way. Uh, that whole like transgressive Chan era, the stuff that he was talking about, I didn't think was the subversive type of transgressive. Uh, and uh, to be honest, the more I hear about what, uh, what else he's done or what he's doing now, it, uh, it actually is kind of uh, upsetting. I mean, uh, remember this dude, is, he's the one who claimed that um, recently that he... Uh, was the one who targeted the uh, epilepsy website, right? That had affected uh, people uh, intentionally trying to give people epileptic se uh, seizures, right? Uh, right. And he said he did this because he wanted to uh, sabotage the more hacktivist direction that Anonymous was moving in, right? Right, against the Church of Scientology, exactly. Right. So why, why should anybody just welcome him back after he says he deliberately tried to set his back now that he just named himself, which is another red flag? I mean, who does that? Like, I mean, that's... Uh, obviously some warning signs and then he just declared himself a founder and he's causing all these problems and he's also involved in some other sketchy shit not to mention his sketchy history you know there's uh, some documentation about you know he's uh, definitely like you know used racial slurs uh, in recent history um, and uh, you know some of his associates are definitely like federal cooperators um, known federal cooperators uh, and he just thinks it's all funny like it's a game um, and so, you know, there's some people who are like, kind of like warning bells are going off because they kind of see like, I, hell, I kind of see uh, the same situation like when, for example, Sabu was out there like being a loudmouth on the internet, a very visible figure that uh, the media actually kind of relied on as for like a leader figure, right? Um, I think the whole problem is like with the idea of leaders and founders is, is always ends up being like usually a straight white dude, like, and it just erases the history of the other work that people are doing uh, in anonymous, but hacktivists in general around the world, you know, it's more than, you know, even hacktivism is bigger than just anonymous, you know, they, this shit dates back, Absolutely. yeah, like, uh, it didn't start in the chance, like, some were hacking, some were not hacking, the ones who were not hacking could have easily always just, you know, used their real name or try to convert the fame of anonymous into, like, a personal brand, and, and everything about anonymous was, like, configured not to allow that, right? So it's so bizarre to have like someone just be so public um, and then step forward in the limelight and then just, yeah, a lot of journalists just kind of lapped it up, you know, um, extremely bizarre. And then, I mean, the other interesting thing, too, is like, you know, the Chans like um, were really good at these raids, right? And one of the big raids was against the Church of Scientology and that morphed into like an earnest protest, right? And there was something powerful about having a swarm kind of come together on the internet. But if you look at like the history of hacking an anonymous, like the sort of hardcore hacking that happened in 2000, late 2010 and all through 2011 and part of 2012, that, that sprung into being after the chans, you know, um, in 2010, September 2010, when a group started to kind of fight for the right to share material, basically to, to pirate, right? Operation Payback, September 2010. That was the kind of group or node that then, you know, morphed into something that supported WikiLeaks and, and then 
started to support the Arab Spring. And, and the hackers involved in that era are the ones that started to kind of hack for social justice, right? Not at all like the Kurtaner era um, trolls, right? So that's actually like a completely distinct uh, genealogy and trajectory entirely. And I don't want to go too much like specifically into Kurtner. We could talk about how, like yeah. you said, one of the internal strengths and survival mechanisms of Anonymous is this Hydra-like decentralization. So the way these figures are, you know, or, ordinarily would be discouraged anyways, because um, they're not any real asset. Anyway. But uh, I want to say, like, how much of this is this unconstructive internet drama, just, you know, unnecessarily like airing dirty laundry and sewing divisions? How much of it is that, or is or is genuine, like, ideological differences that need this public debate or are there people whose behaviors or associations need to be called out because you know obviously our enemies are paying close attention just like we do to them about like divisions in our ranks um and of course there's also the danger that revealing you know embarrassing damage or incriminating personal details in the public you know because of an internet beef that obviously could have some disastrous consequences as well um so how do we go about dealing with these figures who's going on like starting all this shit on the internet yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a great question because, I mean, all movements are going to have differences, right? And you have to tolerate some differences. I mean, some differences you don't tolerate. You have Nazis that show up, you just kick them, you know, super out. But other ones, like, you know, hey, maybe we, we don't like fame and attention, but sometimes, you know, we live in a society that, recognizes individual action, right? And so if someone wants to come along and say, you know, I want some recognition, maybe that's something up for debate, right? And so that's a, that's a great question. And, and in this case, I mean, I think it's just important to sort of set the historical record straight, Yeah. you know? I think that's important just because the power of anonymous is precisely the fact that there was no single person, right? And one can still recognize that single individuals had an important role and also say, but at the same time, the movement worked so powerfully because they were willing to sublimate themselves for the collective, right? Exactly. And so I think it's worth putting that out there. I mean, what's a shame about some of the drama llama right now um, is that there has been a bit of a resurgence of hacktivism, right? Yeah. Um, uh, against the far right, and there's groups like DDoS Secrets that are keeping the torch of transparency and whistleblowing alive. Um, and so some of this kind of drama does feel like some unnecessary division, you know, at, at this time when everything does feel quite fragmented, even as kind of hacktivism is resurging some. Yeah. Like, uh, for example, I don't like how uh, certain members of DDoS had been criticized or named not to get into specific here, but yeah, DDoS is definitely the torchbearer right now. And But I, you had said something earlier that I wanted to go back into about the publicity-seeking nature. Uh, you know, uh, you know, hackers often, the downfall is the urge to brag, right? Um, but anyways, about like publicity-seeking, you know, there's a, uh, hacktivists have known for, you know, trying to, trying to create headlines, right? Trying to, but I just want to kind of bring up the opposite side of the coin is that there's also those when in the hacker underground that kind of completely rejects the uh, outwards publicity-seeking elements. Um, you know, just because you get into something doesn't mean that the, you should immediately deface or leak data from a target. Sometimes 
the option is to listen for a little bit, right? Uh, and the, the decision is like when right. to act, when is the most effective. Uh, so what do, you, what do you think about like uh, the difference between these two different approaches? Why would somebody not want to engage with the media or in particular engaging with researchers or journalists? Like why would anybody like want to talk to somebody like you, for example? Or how does this relate to also the, uh, the philosophy of non-disclosure about not reporting vulnerabilities? Uh, you know, we were talking about full disclosure earlier. Uh, why, why do you think this is? What are the strengths and weaknesses to either of these approaches? Sure. Yeah. I mean, when it comes to hacktivism, which is different from like maybe disclosing vulnerabilities, well, quite different because um, they really go in different uh, trajectories. But in hacktivism, I mean, publicity is good because you drum up supporters, you maybe generate new hacktivists, right? On the other hand, it's it's bad because, you know, law enforcement and others are going to shine their light, right? And so there's always a trade-off between recruitment and safety, I guess. Um, and so, you know, some of the more recent hacktivists like Phineas Fisher, who I know is partly inspired by you and Anonymous, you know, has been very effective at, at coming and going. You know, they, they, they strike gamma group, hacking team, um, and then they disappear, right? Smart. And they've never been caught, which is great. Um, but what it also means is that, like, the kind of collective memory around Phineas Fisher is very short. A lot of people don't remember them. Um, they tend not to inspire new new, you know, hacktivists. I mean, they do to some degree. There was the Decepticons in Brazil that uh, were inspired by Phineas Fisher. So I think that's one um, issue. The other one, too, is like the media loves to focus on, you know, the messenger, right? And that's oftentimes the messenger is not important. It's, it's the message that they're delivering. And so if they really, really do keep anonymous right, then it forces the media just not to be even able to play that game, right? Um, so it, there's just, it's always kind of a trade-off there when it comes to the hacktivism part. That's a really good point, um, how you brought up like kind of the sources themselves, like uh, when there's like a major disclosure, the news will often try to pick apart the person who had done it and reveal all their faults as if that maybe undermines like kind of the truths that they're exposing. Uh, <clears throat> and uh, and uh, as about these sources and the relationships that they have with, uh, you know, journalists uh, or uh, whistle brewing groups and stuff. Like, for example, I mean, when you were doing your research for, um, you know, the work that you do, you were, you were never observing from afar. You've always been kind of close to the action, right? You've been on these channels, public and private. Uh, I mean, what challenges would there be for somebody like kind of being in the position that you have been? Well, for one, being like kind of a public figure because, you know, you, you, you're, you're named. But also like uh, there's a lot of like journalists and researchers out there who have like relationships with sources now who are willing to come forward uh, with some pretty heavy stuff. And we see this stuff all the time, uh, especially over the past year. Uh, so what type of advice would you like give to people uh, on both sides of the equation for the someone who has some info, who wants to do the responsible way of disclosing it? Uh, or to the to the journalist who might be trying to nurture these relationships, the sources. How could uh, yeah. they protect each other, but also be effective? Now that's a great question. I mean, I do think we are really in an interesting era where 
if you really want to remove yourself, you really can, right? Which is just kind of astounding. That was just, I mean, it was definitely possible before the Citizens Commission to expose the FBI just sent um, what they had gotten from breaking into an FBI field office, right, to journalists at the Washington Post and and other places. Um, And we're kind of never caught and we're anonymous until there was a big book written about them once the statute of limitations came out. But it's much easier to do that today. And I do think that if someone really, really, really wants to protect themselves, then that's maybe the best route to go. That said, you have to be really technically proficient to use the available tools to hide your tracks, right? It's, it's still pretty difficult. Um, and you can't just be like, oh, I'll log into a secure drop at the New York Times and drop off the material. No, you know, you need to be on tour. You might have to be using a proxy um, and a few other layers, right, as well. But I also think, you know, um, cultivating journalistic relationships can be very fruitful as well, right? And so it's certainly the case that you may not want to be anonymous fully, and so you do reach out to a journalist or two. Um, And I just think, you know, you have to do your homework, right? Which journalists are you going to trust? Why are you going to certain journalists? And actually, I would recommend, um, you know, for anyone kind of interested in this topic, either kind of intellectually or maybe more for more pragmatic, uh, practical reasons, to check out Barton Gelman's um, book, Dark Mirror, which is on his relationship with Edward Snowden and the Snowden leaks. Oh, yeah, um, dark. Yeah, that's right. Uh, he wrote a book because he, he also uh, worked with Snowden, right? That's right. He did. And he was he was a little bit more removed than Laura Poitras and Glenn Greenwald. But I actually think, I mean, he's an investigative journalist with just so many years, decades of journalistic expertise, you know, um, and just reading his book just made me think about that relationship in a slightly different way, you know? Um, and he was so thoughtful about the material, you know, and what he could do with it and what he did with it later, right? Um, because oftentimes, like, giving over material requires more research, right? And so which journalist is going to do that research, you know? Not all of them will go the extra mile. So I think that's something kind of to think about. Um, but again, you know, if, if you have material more than ever, there are avenues for you to protect yourself, whether you're going to work with a journalist or if you want to be truly anonymous, right? So like your options are, you have multiple options and you just have to think about which path you really want to take. A lot of people blame the rise of the alt-right and Trumpian fascism on internet culture, specifically the chant scene. Is that fair? Now, we know QAnon, which we know has no historical lineage or association with Anonymous at all, and Anonymous pretty universally have come out vocally against it. But you do sometimes see some random anti-vaxxer or Infowars clown rocking the Guy Fox mask. 
just like they get George Orwell or Rage Against Machine so wrong. But what, what does the right adopting the aesthetic or tactics of has, hacktivism mean? Can you talk of the intersection, if there is any, between hackers and right-wing fascism? So I'll start with the beginning, you know, on about Chan culture and the far right, and then we'll get to like QAnon and, and hackers. I mean, certainly the image boards became really, really important for, for the far right. Um, and I think that's interesting insofar as, you know, Anonymous came out of the image boards as well, right? in 2008, 9, 10, and 11. And then actually Anonymous and the image boards, like that relationship was kind of severed by 2012, 13, you know? Anonymous was mostly on chat rooms and Twitter and they weren't really recruiting on the boards anymore. Um, and I think it's interesting because it just comes to show that these boards, which, um, you know, are very problematic insofar as they kind of had a very um, freewheeling attitude where anything goes, right? Um, it does show that people can be pulled in different directions, right? Um, and so the fact that you had something like Anonymous and then later the far right come out of the boards is like, wow, it's a good reminder that, yet, you know, especially young people are um, cultivated and recruited into different movements. And yeah, the, the boards in 2011, 12, 13, 14 became hotbeds for more reactionary kind of politics. And, you know, how that happened and the different actors involved, I mean, that's the subject of like multiple, multiple books, right? But it was deliberately kind of cultivated by distinct actors from far-right nationalists to Steve Bannon to others, right, who really saw the power of going to these um, boards where there was a lot of alienated, disaffected young people and getting them kind of energized to um, fight a new cultural war, right? Um, so that, that definitely happened. And then weirdly, QAnon also came out of these boards, right, later. Um, and it just comes to show that they're like, they're like living media environments that, um, you know, shift um, and also shift the type of people that are there as well, right? But it's, it's, it's hard to kind of, they're very hard to... Um, like, unless you're on the boards following them, kind of piecing that history afterwards is very difficult, right? And so some people just sort of portray these boards as if, like, Anonymous became the far right. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Which is, again, absolutely ludicrous. Um, but on the other hand, if you're not following it, I could understand why you might think that. Because people use the term anonymous on the boards, right? And then later on with QAnon, um, especially like, even though they didn't fully take on the iconography of anonymous, it would pop up here and there, right? Um, and so to like outsiders, like 
they're just going to think a linear story when it's anything but linear, right? It's groups that are there and then they leave the boards, even QAnon, you know, boards um, like 8chan were very important to the initial genesis of QAnon. But then there was other boards that were not anonymous, other figures, QTubers, um, who are very public, uh, evangelical groups, right, off the internet, who cultivated QAnon, right? So in some ways, I often see like the boards as a place where things get seeded, you know, um, and start to sprout. But then the very cultivation of like the garden of Anonymous, the garden of QAnon, that happens elsewhere, you know? Um, and, and what's interesting too, like about QAnon is they're kind of like a cult at some level, you know? That's cult with a Q. It's exactly. And Anonymous, the hacktivist came into being to fight cults, right? That's exactly wow, right. Yeah. You have like this full circle. Um, which is just kind of wacky to think about how you have like a group that came into being as activists to fight cults. And like I said, broke off from, um, broke off from the boards. And then, you know, 10 years later, these boards basically helped seed a cult, you know? Plus, Anonymous has always been about exposing the truth, fighting for the truth, right? And, and QAnon is obviously, uh, like an embodiment of this post-truth era that we're in where basically people think that they're entitled to whatever facts they want and you could find like whatever the evidence that you're looking for on the internet because you have like you had mentioned steve bannon you have bad actors you have uh you know the fascists uh you have corporations and governments who are deliberately like kind of manipulating technology messing with the algorithm uh you know, you got like Cambridge Analytica, you got the recent Facebook leaks, you got bad actors who are, you know, and, and that's interesting how you had mentioned that, you know, QAnon was also kind of a top down thing, like the drops were like signed uh, and we're kind of learning about who might have been behind some of it. Uh, and it, it could go all the way up to like Bannon and Michael Flynn and stuff like that, not to mention just the HN people who are known. But uh, uh, I, that kind of leads into what I was going to ask you next about like this, these troll farms and these psyops and right wing misinformation, right? So what is the solution to uh, kind of fighting this? I mean, I know you talked about like um, the troll farms in one of your podcasts. Um, so, I mean, I, I know a lot of the right wingers now are claiming that their, their free speeches are being violated because they got kicked off Twitter and all that shit, right? But is, you know, a lot of activists are now, their thing is uh, just like getting people, you know, reporting, you know, delivered bad actors of misinformation. And what is the best approach? I mean, is that a solution? Like, what should we be doing to um, fight that, but also kind of maintain like, yeah, I mean, I think that's just one of the toughest um, nuts to crack and like solutions are not always very straightforward, you know? I mean, certainly we don't want a couple of corporations, Facebook and Twitter, to have so much power, you know? Like that's, that's always going to be a problem. And... Um, and so people at least are sort of talking about that, you know, recognizing that these monopolies, right, which are controlling our public airwaves, but they're private corporations, are a problem, right? And, I mean, you know, one can imagine a very decentralized tech media sphere, um, 
But I still think some of these problems would very much exist, you know? Because if the far right or alt right is able to kind of create their own decentralized tech, right? They will also exist. Um, and so, like, you know, having a sort of monopoly means that if they take action to deplatform them, then they have nowhere to go, right? And that's kind of like potentially a positive. On the other hand, you know, you just don't want these companies to have so much power and they, they don't act transparently. I mean, we know that, especially with Facebook, right? Right. Um, they really, really, really deliver content in ways that will maximize profits for them, right? Not necessarily in the public interest. Um, but I, again, I think decentralizing tech won't necessarily just magically solve the problem either, you know? And so I actually don't have like, I don't have great ideas for the tech landscape. I do think that something more fundamental is broken in our society, oh, yeah. you know? And that's what needs to be fixed. No um, doubt, no doubt. I mean, at first of all, it's a good point yeah. you said about the monopoly of social media because okay. I should be worth pointing out that, you know, all these social media companies routinely crack down on uh, anti-fascist, uh, you know, type accounts uh, all the time. Um, so it's not like, but about is what you're saying that the problem is bigger than the technology. Yeah, most definitely. Like it's, uh, uh, you can't blame like kind of the rise of like proto-fascism of the past couple of years exclusively on the internet. I mean, it's very much a, a reflection of like the, the, haunting of racism that our society has in the United States has since its birth, right? And it's lingering that, still. That's right. And it comes in these ways, you know, I mean, like, just when you read about the history of racism in the United States, like, stamped from the beginning, you know, it's a great book on the history of racism in the U.S., like a massive book. And you're like, it just comes in these waves, right? And media is always important for both the fascists and the anti-fascists for the racists and the anti-racists, right? And like whoever controls the means of communication and whoever is better at recruitment, whoever is better at getting their message out, right, dominates in one era. Um, and so certainly you don't want like to have very naive conceptions of free speech out there that will just sanction what everyone says and does, right? Um, and so that's, you know, one problem that we've had in America where it's such a strong, there's such a strong free speech tradition, so it's very easy just to be like, well, anyone can do whatever and say whatever they want, right? Well, maybe not, <laughs> you know? Um, but we do live in an era where people can get the word out. And generally, I think that's, that's a better thing, you know? But what that means is that if you want to fight fascism, well, you have to think hard about recruitment as well, right? Not just about fighting the fascists, but fighting the making of the fascists, right? Like, that's just as important. We have to remember that not everyone is, you know, from the cradle a fascist, right? And, and a lot of it is top down, honestly. I mean, like we need to like the Fox News is the OANs and stuff like that are very uh, the Breitbart network, the Steve Bannon stuff are very, you know, it's, it's disappointing to talk to someone who has obviously been like captivated by this, the QAnon cult and stuff like that. They're just repeating sound bites over and over again, like uh, 
because the the right is waging a meme warfare, right? I mean, and so people are just repeating. Right. Shit. Um, I kind of wanted to ask you another thing, uh, and and this is, has to do with uh, another shift having to do with um, the supporters of WikiLeaks over the years. There's been kind of a shift to the right, uh, and and it's not even necessarily about Assange or particularly, but how it seems like the right wing is now trying to claim like this exclusive ownership of the right for free speech and the rights of journalists and stuff like that, right? I mean, um, so do, why, how, how can you explain that? Like, what's going on with that? Like, why are, like, all these, like, WikiLeaks supporters also, like, tweeting, like, pictures of Pepe and stuff like that? Like, what's up with that? Yeah. So WikiLeaks, um, yeah, basically lost the support of many... Well, lost the support of many liberals initially and then leftists eventually, especially after 2016, where WikiLeaks kind of released emails um, right before the American election, and many believe that that kind of helped get Trump into power, right? And that he was in part pandering to, to Trump to be able to kind of get some sort of pardon and 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 become released so he lost the support of very understandably of a lot of people just at, at the moment too where again the far right the right the reactionary right in the united states was gaining visibility and was facing deplatforming from the social media companies right so they started to cry free speech um that they were being persecuted so then you have this like crazy cultural shift happening and also you have like you know the rise of the rhetoric of cancel culture at this very same time as well where certain people on the right were accusing leftists of you know you know squelching speech on campus and um, supporting cancel culture politics. And this, all this kind of converged so that, yeah, basically the reactionary and the right became known for advocating for a certain type of free speech, right? Um, and, you know, that this kind of speech they were advocating for is not necessarily the type that I personally um, embrace. But I do think that it's important for, for leftists to have a clear vision of free speech and its importance in relation to journalism and social justice, you know? Like, I don't think that they should have, like, some universal or naive embrace of free speech politics, but they do need some more contained version of why free speech is important, right? And for two reasons. One is because we do have to protect our journalists, you know? Like, they don't always do a great job, and I'll be the first to criticize any journalist that doesn't. But you know what? The second that journalists don't have independence and freedom, like, then you revert to a fascist society, right? You can't have the government, you know, jailing journalists um, to get to their sources, so that's like one really important thing. Um, and then, the, you know, the other thing is like, I don't think speech is going to solve 
everything at all, right? Some people say, well, the problem with bad speech is that it needs to be confronted with good speech. And you're like, well, you know, <laughs> like, eh, that doesn't really work many times, right? But nevertheless, who are the first, like, at universities to often get booted? It's the leftists or those that support Palestine. Yeah, You know. exactly. And so I work at a university, and so actually I do believe that it's important to have some parameters of academic freedom, you know? And again, because I've seen those on the left be the ones that are most crushed by the loss of academic freedom. So I do feel like leftists need a very clear but contained articulation of why free speech is important. One that doesn't oversell it as a panacea, but one that also doesn't just completely throw it under the bus either, you know? Yeah, that's a, there's a lot of nuance. But I also want to hone in on one thing you always said about how kind of like the right has adopted this shit is like, first off, it's, it's disingenuous because, uh, you know, the whole time when uh, WikiLeaks was putting out stuff that exposed U.S. imperialism and, and militarism and, 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 the, and war crimes and stuff like that, man, they were all calling for all these people to be locked up. Uh, you know, that type of stuff, droned and all that shit, right? Um, and so it really is a, a marriage of convenience for one, like obviously helping get Trump elected, but, uh, but also like, you know, the fantasies of like um, how like these WikiLeaks is going to expose like these satanic pedophile rings, you know what I mean? Like type of stuff. Um, but when it comes to like other leaks and stuff like that, that like uh, means something like, hey, the Cambridge Analytica stuff, they're like dead quiet on it, you know what I mean? Right. No, exactly. And it's just very bizarre, like, if, if some folks in the right would stand up precisely with other leaks, like Cambridge Analytica and stuff like that, then you'd be like, oh, okay, they really do embrace this, but they do so very selectively, right? And predictably, Trump, uh, you know, everybody thought that maybe he was going to pardon Assange and stuff like that, but, you know, of course, all he ended up doing was pardon all his cronies you know, Bannon and all that shit, you know what I mean, so. Yeah, absolutely. Trump is not, like, the most reliable person to, you know, bet your future on. <laughs> so, and, you know, I mean, I was I was very disappointed in, in what had happened with WikiLeaks. On the other hand, you know, this is something I've, I've talked about with you. I, I am glad that they put independent whistleblowing on the map, you know? Um, like that was of great service and, and other groups like DDoS Secrets and XNet in Spain have, have taken that model and have done much better things with it. And I'll always be grateful for WikiLeaks and Assange for that. And yeah, I don't think he should be extradited for like the Espionage Act. Absolutely you know? not, yeah, absolutely not. I mean, that's super frightening. I mean, it goes back to this free speech issue, right? Like, no, we can't have journalists or those that support journalism, like whistleblowing platforms, be prosecuted under an act that could lead to the death penalty. Right. Yeah. Or, or, or support in any way, like the notion that the United States could just go anywhere in the world and snap somebody up and bring them here and, and give them these, these charges and stuff like that. That's right. That's right. You know, you brought up a few of uh, the more recent, uh, you know, work that's been coming out. Uh, DDoS, uh, I believe. What has been happening like over the past year? You, we talked earlier. This is kind of like almost a golden age of hacktivism and leaking and stuff, right? You got Epic Leaks, Blue Leaks. Uh, what are some of the new stuff that's been going on? I mean, absolutely. It's 
2020 and 2021 have been incredibly exciting for hacktivism and leaking. So in the summer of 2020, I think one of the most important acts of hacktivism um, was orchestrated by a group, an individual under the name Anonymous, who acquired a bunch of information related to the police and fusion centers in particular, you know, real troves of, of data from emails to training manuals, um, and gave them over to DDoS secrets. And what was interesting about it was both the data, which I feel like has been underutilized, you know, it hasn't been mined and studied carefully yet. Um, there's been a few kind of reports that have come out, journalistic reports that have come out from it, but there's so much more to do. Um, but what was disturbing was that Twitter banned DDoS secrets and the hashtag blue leaks, right? And this goes back to what we were talking about earlier about like, wow, you know, the power of one company to do that, right? And it really chilled the research that was going on around it. But nevertheless, I think it was is really important. And that just kind of like inaugurated this like recent period where um, hacktivists have gone after the police. Then there was also, you know, um, the hack against Epic, which is a web hosting firm. Um, popular among the reactionary and the far right. Uh, there was also uh, uh, gab leaks as well, right? And what I think is interesting about these leaks, all of them, including the, the police leaks, the blue leaks, is that there might not be evidence of like, you know, earth-shattering, wrongdoing corruption that you could then prosecute a single individual. But what they give window into are, you know, movements and the culture of, for example, policing, right? And just the, the ways in which um, the police are just really, really implicated in racism or going after social movements in very pro problematic ways, right? Definitely. And so I think it's it's really important material for researchers to understand, yeah, social movements on the right and the kind of corrupt politics of culture um, among the police. And what's also exciting is that these hacktivists haven't been caught, right? Yeah, good on them. Yeah. Um, so it's a little bit quieter, you know, it's, it's people acting more individually or in small groups. They're not inviting you to join their operations, but they're being effective, right? They're getting data out there. The data's getting out to researchers and journalists. And then I just think like what needs to happen is that there has to be more pressure on the journalistic world to use this data, right? Because it's tough stuff to wade through, you know? That's that's a lot of the work, and uh, you, you brought up a good point. How um, there's kind of like a lot of people involved in this, right? I mean, you have the uh, initial person who came, dropped it, and left, right? But a lot of the work is involved in. Uh, you said it's underutilized, it's because it's often large troves of information that uh, oftentimes media won't want to touch. So it's uh, on us to look and find these stories and uh, um, 
And, 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 and there's been hella stories in them. I remember the, the blue stuff, there is some good stuff in the fusion centers about how they're targeting BLM activists and stuff. Um, but also, like you That's said, right. the, the day-to-day conversation amongst, like, officers, like, learning how they talk to each other uh, kind of shatters, like, the public's illusion of what they think, like, what police are like. You know what I mean? Like, it's a, it's a, lot, it's a lot grittier. It's a lot, like, harsh. You know, it, it's, it's not cops and law and order, man. It's, uh, you know, it, there's not even that really uh, much difference between sometimes when you read some of these cop emails and, and some of these the right-wing fascists, like an epilepsy, something like that. They're actually kind of similar, aren't they? Right. But this is what I mean, like... They're so, they're so perfect for getting at the ideologies, you know, cultures of the police, which are often very racist, right? This is what you are able to access, like the training manual. There's probably nothing illegal technically in there. There are training manuals, right? But that gives you a window into, like, how police are trained and how they come to think of people right yeah in, in very problematic ways it's no it's like a gold mine it's funny because i was i was reading up on blue leaks a little bit in anticipation of this and then i was just like oh my god can i get a phd student that just goes through this material and writes like an ethnography of the police through blue leaks you know um because it, it's there's so much out there right that's a good point how you said a lot of what uh, the police were doing actually isn't illegal. And in some of these training manuals, they're basically uh, entirely justifications, legal justifications of how the police are saying, here's how you can be a brutal racist piece of shit, right? But yet still stay within the confines of the law. That's right. And then one can, with this material, go, okay, and yet this is still a problem, right? Precisely because of, you know what they're encouraging, but also because of how they're able to kind of skirt the law in the process, right? But yeah, I really I really admire both the individuals who are giving this data over and then groups like DDoS Secrets who are hosting it and making it searchable and putting it up there. Um, because like, again, there's not gonna be you know many groups who, who do that. And, you know, they've also, at, at times, even with Blue Leaks, they redacted information, right, to protect individuals. I mean, they, they lean towards more exposure rather than less, but they do take some precautions. I believe with Gab Leaks, um, they made that only available to researchers and journalists. They didn't publish it. There was just too much individual information. I mean, another really interesting thing is how ransomware groups now are releasing emails. And, oh, yeah. And journalists and DDoS secrets are publishing emails released by, you know, these ransomware groups who are just wanting to make money. Mm-hmm. But it's an effective way to, you know, gain public support maybe or... Um, maybe help, you know, it's a little bit maybe Robin Hood. As, as they take some money, they give something back. It's a really interesting new development, though. Yeah, I think what the DC leaks were uh, ransomware leaks. Um, yep, yep. And yeah, that's an interesting development, right? I mean, um, they may not like necessarily be doing it like for like the same ideologically motivated reasons that say some of us might, but uh, the effect is the same. Like it's, it's Oftentimes, like you said, you focus on the source and their foibles, but really, like, the, the truth speaks for itself. Um, and uh, amongst one of those truths, like, look at the Blue League stuff is, uh, like, we were talking about how uh, it's within the confines of the law. Well, that, that makes me think every time someone says something like, oh, the police, 
uh, it's a broken system, or or is uh, the police are bad? He's like, well, actually, they're they're behaving exactly as they were originally designed to do, and how the rules of the system right, are built right. in a certain way, and then we see for ourselves how these rules are written and what they're teaching them, and it's not broken. They're doing exactly as uh, what they were designed for. Right, and and it also goes against this like simply bad apple theory, you know. It's like, well, sure, of course, there can be some particularly noxious individuals, right? And not every cop is like a white supremacist, but there's a culture, right? And people get trained in that. Yep. And that, that is systemic. Um, and again, you get a window into that through these, these manuals. That's why we say all cops are bastards. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, uh, Biela, it's so good to talk to you. Well, what's next for you? What you doing? What am I doing? I'm, try I'm trying to get to the States. <laughs> uh, no, I mean, I'm, yeah, I, but I literally am just trying to get to the States. I've been trying to get there for the last 10 days. No, I mean, I hope to, so I've been, you know, working on Hack Curio, which is this like video portal into hacking. And I will kind of pick that up again. Um, some of the things that we've talked about, I've, I'm writing about for a book of essays. Cool, cool. And um, I also hope to get a hacker archive project off the ground at my new job as well. Sweet. Never a boring Yeah. Moment. No. <laughs> nope. All right. I, I okay. also want to ask you, uh, what did you think of like kind of the narrative uh, that, you know, the hackers start out? young and wild, might call themselves even hacktivists or black hats, and, it, and people get in a little trouble, but then when the pressure's on, you kind of have to grow up. It's like it's this thing that you just sell out all the way that, you know, you end up working in the cybersecurity industry, InfoSec, the same companies and governments that you once fought against. It's like this rite of passage, at least in the United States, uh, tropes dragged out repeatedly. And for some reason, it's kind of accepted here, right? Like, as if you don't, like, lose your hacker credentials. What's up with that? And I also want to ask you, like, what role that the university plays a part in that pipeline to working in the security industry? Yeah. So that is a, a common trajectory. And I think part of the problem is that, you know, they're just such lucrative jobs. You know, the cost of living is so high. It's just very easy for people just to go down that path. And yet what is a shame is that, and, and this connects to the university thing, which I'll get to in a moment, is that, you know, if there were just more, like, jobs in the tech world, and they don't have to be at all, like, crazy venture capital, like, high-paying jobs, but, like, decent salaries, right? I think more people would go for those jobs, you know? Um, mm. I'll never forget once, like, a student who I ran into was like, yeah, you know, do you know of any jobs kind of in the nonprofit tech world that I can go to? Because he was really against like working for the military, you know, or doing like crazy AI stuff. So he, uh, all he did was kind of like work, he worked in the kind of world of like tech and retail. He felt like that was the most, you know, least harmful or whatever. Yeah. And, it's funny because I was like, yeah, you know, you're right that there's there's not like a whole lot of jobs in the kind of non-corporate, non-military world in tech, you know, and we need to kind of build that up. 
And someone who is building that up is Nathan Schneider. He's actually a professor um, at University of Colorado in Boulder. And he's trying to kind of like bring the idea of the co-op to the tech world. You know, like tech people can come together. So Nathan Schneider is precisely trying to do that, trying to kind of create the idea of the tech co-op, right? Where instead of kind of organizing yourself as a kind of corporation, which you sell to a venture capitalist, you configure yourself as worker owned and run, right? And then create technology that can help society. And, you know, then create also like a co-op where everyone has a living wage, right? And so like, man, that's what we need. You know, that's a vision right there. Yeah. A lot of people like, like, you know, me, for example, like we're trying to find a way to uh, like use our skills in a meaningful but uh, ethical way that doesn't contribute to, you know, the military industrial complex or like the uh, the big algorithm, you know, designing like facial recognition software that ends up helping law enforcement or border patrol, something like that. Like uh, and, and you said it's money and that, you know, it's kind of sad. Capitalism like uh, is, you know, basically promising like these privileges and positions and power to people who do have the capability to do that and i could see why uh i don't agree with it at all but i, I could see why someone who maybe like has never really experienced anything in their life like would see why it was, there's nothing wrong with doing that or they're just doing it for the check and uh do we have to undermine this we have to undermine the fact that people think it's acceptable to go work for like uh and, and we've had our victories you know what i mean like remember the time that uh people pressured google to drop their contract with the military over right. the AI thing. Um, and so uh, that, I think, is a good step in the right direction uh, to show that, you know, these tech workers, maybe they're not class enemies. Because, uh, I mean, right now I'm not convinced, you know what I mean, honestly, because they built the system and we're all suffering under the system. So uh, No, exactly. And, and we have to have, like, strategies that provide exit and alternatives, right? Both in terms of worker autonomy and then building tech for good, you know, and the only way you're going to do that is in a nonprofit model, right? It's like win-win, worker collective, and then build tech for good, right? And just, I think we need more of that. And, I, you know, the university isn't nurturing that with very few exceptions. I mean, universities cater either to research that serves military purposes or more and more for, like, Silicon Valley-type you know, companies, and the, there's very few exceptions. Like Princeton, for example, has a lot of public interest um, technologists in their computer science department, like Ed Felton, who's very famous. Um, and so a lot of people kind of go into policy and public interest tech, which is, which is great. Um, but, you know, we can't just have like military, Silicon Valley, and then like a couple of universities that funnel people to public interest technology, right? That's just not enough. So is there hope for the youth? <laughs> is there, is there, well, you know, actually I do think that there is because, I mean, they're just inheriting such a fucked up world, you know? And, like, because of that, they, they will actually probably f have to fight, Right? for kind of a revolution for survival, you know? Um, and it's sad because people in our generation and above left them this mess, right? We failed. It's your turn. 
Exactly. So, I mean, I do have like hope, but in in some weird way because of our massive failures. And of course, we're still around. We we still have to and will fight. You know, um, but things just have to change. And so there there are ways out of this. Whether it's again how people come together to organize, how people come together to work, and we can't get rid of technology. It's here, right? I mean, we just can't fully go back to a pre-technological era. I mean, we've had technology since for, for millennia, but how we make our tech, how we use it and what we use it for, that has to change. Mm. Uh, NFTs, really quick, one line, one line, one line. Okay, no, I, was just I hate fucking, NFTs. I was just fucking with you. Like, <laughs> but I got the quote I wanted now, so I'm good. Like. <laughs> Cool. All right. Wow, it's been good hanging with We are living in a dark age of disinformation. Formerly pro-establishment, the so-called patriots have ripped open a parallel universe where they lose all faith in their country and engage in open rebellion. They are anti-system now, fresh after licking Trump's boot. We've seen the big lie, the stop the steel coup attempt, the failed insurrection. Now we're in the midst of the far right's pivot to defy the vaccine and mask mandates, in which they see as proof of Biden's tyranny and a worthy battleground for these wannabe civil war secession types. But the pivot is based on a conspiracy theory and a terribly deadly lie that this virus is not a big deal. It's COVID denialism. Anti-vax propagandists spread misinfo and cause people to not trust legitimate medical information, refuse life-saving vaccinations, and thus extending the pandemic and contributing to mass death. Even the biggest denialist Trump himself has been begging his supporters to take the vaccine because he wants to claim it was his idea. But his base supporters are in too deep now and they don't want to hear that shit, so now the GOP can't mention the vaccine without potential political blowback from their radicalized base. We could be having conversations about basic information and best practices to resist the plague, coming up with reasonable solutions for society to safely function, addressing global vaccine inequities, but instead we argue with the cult of ignorance over basic truths to this virus. So many of the anti-vax culture warriors are volatile, eager for a soapbox, eager to live stream themselves getting kicked out of restaurants by cops they claim to support. They say they feel like they're being treated like second-class citizens, insultingly comparing their struggles to that of the civil rights movement, saying the mandates are like racial segregation and apartheid. They compare the unvaccinated to the victims of the mass murders of the Holocaust under the Nazis. 
They say this with a straight face as they rail against the teachings of actual history and the current reality of racism in America. They say my body, my choice about vaccines, but simultaneously want to end Roe vs. Wade. They talk about electoral integrity, while meanwhile the GOP, using these very same conspiracy theories, pushing harder than ever to further erode voting rights, with many states passing racist laws designed to prevent people from voting, all in plain sight. This mind-fuckingly offensive upside-downedness signifies that the problems in this country run deeper than just what happened on Gen 6. But neoliberalism is also on the same spectrum of denialism, also committed to apocalypse capitalism, with a rush to go back to normal, ending pandemic relief and ushering everyone back to work and school amidst the Omicron surge. This sociopathic lack of empathy is also exemplified by this growing belief that the pandemic will last forever and we should just get used to it. That the new variant is only mild. It's fine. It is only the most vulnerable who are affected by this new variant. The loss of life is always in the economic calculus inherent to the logic of capitalism. There exists a level of disease and death that is to be acceptable. So we're not forgetting the Dems' complete failure to handle the pandemic response adequately to the magnitude demanded of the moment. They are also kicking people to the curb as well. We are glad to see people rejecting and resisting this. Particularly moving are the CPS students in Chicago who have walked out of classes for their rights to safe education during COVID times. This is an inspiring sign that the kids are all right. Despite the city, which continues to fail them with massive funding for cops and not for schools, and forcing in-person classes despite the teachers and students struggling for the continuation of remote learning during the surge of the Omicron variant. Others, however, seem to be working to help spread the plague. These foaming at their infectious mouth anti-vaxxers, these mega zombies, have not given up the fight. Just listen. You are listening to the sounds of Gen 6 Capitol Liars singing the U.S. National Anthem in the so-called Patriot Wing of the D.C. Jail. Haunting. Apparently, in a cult-like fashion, they sing it every night at 9, and according to Marjorie Taylor Greene, they sing with, quote, such passion and true devotion for their country, you could hear it in their voice. She, Matt Gates, and other pro-insurrection GOP lawmakers had visited the imprisoned insurrectionists in a publicity stunt to rally support for the Jan 6 political prisoners, as they call them, who they claim are suffering abuse in a two-tier justice system. Earlier this month was the anniversary of the Jan 6 right-wing coup attempt, and as fallout from that fateful day is still ongoing, we reflect on the significance of the attack on Congress to overturn the 2020 election. Trump's insurrection failed that day, but the violent white supremacist extremism in which Trumpism is a symptom of remains as a constantly looming fascist plague that haunts the country. The same people who went on a rampage over the election at the end of 2020 and at Jan 6 continue to wreak havoc and have now gone local, pivoting to harassing school board over mask and vaccine mandates, causing disruptions, even sometimes at healthcare facilities, demanding ivermectin and making death threats, complaining about being discriminated against for their medical status, being denied service, all while denying the realities of COVID as we are in the midst of this surge. As we enter the midterm election year, the likelihood of far-right mobilizations and insurgent violence remains higher now than ever before. Instead of forming a separate MAGA or Patriot Party as thought possible immediately after the attack, Trump and his loyalists have decided to double down and stay with the GOP as the dominant force in the party. They're seeking to make internal purges of rhinos, or Republicans in name only, those deemed unloyal who don't bend the knee to Trump. Unicorn Riot recently wrote up a comprehensive investigative summary of the fallout of Jan 6, and It's Going Down's most recent episode of This Is America podcast also breaks down this attempted power grab of the insurgent far right. Since Jan 6, 
Right-wing media has done everything they can to minimize the significance of the attack. They first tried to deny the whole thing was MAGA, saying it was Antifa infiltrators. Then they tried claiming it was an FBI setup. Then it was merely just a group of tourists. And finally, the whataboutisms, making a false equivalency between the Capitol riots and the George Floyd uprisings of the summer. The latter, they claim, was far worse. Entire cities burned, they cried. But it was Trump who whipped up his fascist supporters into a frenzy. And after the election, they came out in droves to D.C. Jan 6 came on the heels of the million MAGA marches, practice runs for Jan 6. Of course, its numbers were more like in the tens of thousands, but they were fucking fascists who were very open about their plans for violence. Proud Boys, self-proclaimed militia, the army for Trump, they marched each evening and attacked people in the street and terrorized the city and country. Similar rallies had been happening at state capitals as well. Each night was inches from becoming deadly. Yet, it was only after Jan 6 did the DOJ say their priority is to investigate and prosecute these white supremacist extremist groups. Around 750 individuals so far have been charged by the feds for participating in the Capitol riots. Many low-level misdemeanors like parading on restricted grounds, but there are also hundreds of felonies, including assaults against police, interruption of federal official processes, and most recently conspiracy and sedition in the cases of Stuart Rhodes and 10 other members of the Oath Keeper militias. 350 felonies, but almost everybody, except like 40 people, are out of jail. Most were granted bail or already had their cases adjudicated. Many have already accepted cooperating plea deals, Almost everybody got extremely light sentences, such as probation or a month or two in jail. Only a few have received any real time. The most so far is uh, Robert Palmer, who got five years for beating a cop with a fire extinguisher. And then there was a QAnon shaman, Jake Chansley. He got 40 months. He's at the low in FCI Safford. There's still other cases pending, and some of the more serious and complicated conspiracy charges could drag out for some time in what they called the largest federal investigation in U.S. history. While the pawns have taken some heat, the architects of the Jan 6 coup attempt continue to skirt accountability. The Jan 6 committee is finally getting around to issuing subpoenas for Rudy Giuliani, Sidney Powell, Nick Fuentes, and other high-profile leaders and propagandists of the big lie. Trump and his closest minions have so far refused the subpoenas and are dragging it out in the courts by filing lawsuits against releases of information and slamming the Jan 6 Commission on Investigation as a Marxist witch hunt. He is still out there saying he won in 2020 while he and the GOP are plotting the next coup in 2024. None of them have spent a day in jail for their crimes and probably won't. And all these Trump officials refusing the subpoenas, you know, they lock people up all the time for contempt. Hell, I did an extra six months for contempt, really a year, as we talked about in earlier episodes. So it's like, what the hell? It's infuriating to see these powerful, horrible people just get away with this. Like fascist horror show Steve Bannon. He was pardoned by Trump after scanning millions on that racist border wall. So now he's got two criminal contempt charges, but they let him out on bail. And you know, when any of us had asked for bail, they were all like, well, that would undermine the coercive purpose of detaining you for contempt. Bannon's trial is still half a year away, all of them just walking around like it wasn't nothing. And the Jan Sixers, too. Nearly all of them got bail or probation, never saw jail. And there's just so many more examples of the gross disparities with how Trump's crew, how the Jan Six insurrectionaries, they've been treated so lightly as compared with how most others experience the criminal justice system. Which is to say, when it's us, if there's any way to interpret or manipulate the law to be against us, the worst case scenario, that's what's happening. But here they are, basically cashing in on the full benefits of white privilege and their political connections to those in power. One thing we have seen overemphasized about Jan 6 is the cry from the right about the so-called political prisoners. Much can be said about the imprisoned insurrectionists' complaints about conditions in the jail. Liberal knee-jerk reaction is to say, lock them up. They deserve every ounce of misery they get. While relishing in the irony of back the blues, don't do the crime if you can't do the time, is momentarily amusing, nobody should be sourcing their pleasure in the suffering of our enemies by the prison system. This is the rub we want to get into. What is the abolitionist perspective in regards to Jan 6 prosecutions? Prison abolitionists have consistently held that police and prisons aren't ever solutions, that they need to be shut down immediately, 
that everybody needs to be freed unconditionally. We aren't with lock them up as much as we may detest their politics or actions. It's actually a little worrisome that these liberals are looking for catharsis or revenge or closure or whatever through imprisonment. And how often have they also argued the same for us? So we've got to beat back the liberal lust for carceral solutions. The enemy of our enemy is not our friend. And central to anarchist, anti-fascist, or any kind of organizing is the refusal to work with or rely on the state to solve our problems. The punitive act of incarceration is an act of a harm itself, and instead of keeping people safe, it destabilizes the community. Has imprisoning a few of the rioters prevented those on the outside from engaging in the same kind of violent agitation that we've seen on Gen 6? Maybe in the immediate aftermath, but here we are a year later, Proud Boys are still regular fixtures of right-wing mobilizations, and the violence continues, likely to increase as we enter midterm election year. And look at how they're now railing behind January 6th defendants as heroes, patriots, political prisoners. There's a lot of websites. Patriot Freedom Project, Citizens Against Political Persecution, American Gulag, that one run by Jim Hoff, the founder of alt-right disinfo site The Gateway Pundit. These are support sites for Jan Sixers, plus the hundreds of fundraisers on GiveSendGo.com, the Christian fascist alternative to GoFundMe. They're like, it's shocking to say, but America now has legitimate political prisoners in mass, as if the government is somehow targeting them for their politics or races, if their murderous fascist coup attempt is some great political act worthy of defending. To defend as, say, raising millions and millions of dollars, definitely some grifting going on. So they're trying to gain sympathy about their cases, their jail conditions, while at the same time making sure to spit out their delusional belief that BLM was supposedly treated so lightly by comparison. Basically, the grievances and analysis extends only to freedom and better conditions for their own, their own fascist warrior clowns that Trump used up and kicked to the curb. They don't ever speak up for others affected by the prison industrial complex. They deny the existence of actual political prisoners and prisoners of war. They defend the cop each and every single time they get away with murder, or they defend people like Kyle Rittenhouse who basically fulfilled their bloodlust fantasies. So after they riled up their most rabid Trump cultists to throw their sore loser riot at the Capitol, and a few of them end up in jail, now they want to cry persecution. They want special treatment, unlike the other criminals who they believe deserve to be in prison. They believe they are the exceptions, really hitting home the point that the prison system was from the beginning never designed for people like them. And so it's understandable why some people would find enjoyment and poetic justice in seeing the tables turned for a change. These Jan Sixers, majority, middle, upper class, cis, white men of privilege, they're just now experiencing a taste of what everybody else had always been subjected to, had to eat the same bologna sandwiches we all had to eat, and now they're crying, writing manifestos from jail. This isn't what America's about. Really, though? People have been fighting against that notorious D.C. jail forever. And now, only when these special right-wingers, these white people, start complaining about it, the government felt like it had to do something to address their astroturfed fury. So last month, the U.S. Marshals did an unannounced inspection of the D.C. jail and found that they were not in compliance with the minimum detention standards. First off, there's never an unannounced inspection. Obviously, they're always scheduled and carefully choreographed. The inspectors are good friends with the warden. They're often former wardens themselves. They'll have already repainted the walls. They'll already have lined up several bootlicking inmates if they want to question anybody. They'll just rubber stamp the process, make themselves look good. The dog and pony show. Anyways, I'm very familiar with the U.S. Marshall detention standards. Stuff like square foot per person, number of toilets, showers and sinks, food conditions, access to hygiene, recreation, medical care, etc. So there's like 50,000 federal prisoners, mostly pre-trial or in transit, currently held outside the Bureau of Prisons in these raggedy county jails and detention centers, and they're really terrible places. Basically, none of them follow the standards, and it's only gotten worse since the pandemic. 
I remember two summers ago during the height of COVID, they suspended all transfers and we were stuck in transit in Oklahoma City. Not the FTC, but the local overflow jail in Grady County Jail. And it was just the worst place to be caught during the pandemic. Dorms of triple stack bunks. They were in staunch denial that COVID had completely swept the dorms. And people are trying to get lawyers and Congress to look at these obvious detention standard violations. We got no traction, no answers. So literally everybody caught COVID, people died. People are still dying, and it's like this everywhere, because the prison system is simply unable and unwilling to protect people even three years into the pandemic, and we still have not seen the mass releases that people have been demanding that are so urgently needed. So when I read these statements of these Jan Sixers, once you get past the rhetoric, most of their complaints are really just kind of basic jail conditions. For example, bad food or the 23-hour-a-day lockdown. And I don't mean to say this to trivialize these conditions, you know, because I, we've experienced it ourselves, and it's terrible, and it all needs to end. But you don't see these Jan Sixers interested in advocating for prisoner rights as a whole. They're not linking up with existing abolitionist groups, of course, or demanding an end to solitary confinement. They're not going on hunger strike in solidarity with those at Rikers Island or Stateville or in Palestine. Really, it's because they support these systems. Law and order. They're part of it. It's an anomaly that any of them are in jail at all, which is what they really mean when they claim they're being discriminated against for being conservative or being white. Most of them are used to just getting away with shit. Their crimes are the officially sanctioned ones, done in the name of business. In actuality, with the millions of dollars raised in support from these high-profile backers, they have so much more power, influence, and protection than anyone else, not just when it comes to how their cases are being handled in the courts, but also in the prisons themselves. They talk about the jail food, but unlike everyone else there who got to eat the regular shit, remember, they raise millions. I guarantee their commissary bags are full each week and burning up the phones, too. Prison administrators are going to treat them very carefully to avoid retaliatory lawsuits and public attention. There's been some claims that individual guards have insulted them for being white or whatever. One guy claims he was beaten by guards because he was trying to start a Bible study group, supposedly. But it sounds like there's more to that story than they're letting on. I bet many prison guards are supporters, too. So with all the connection and influence, with support from people like Marjorie Taylor Greene, they finally got the marshals to admit that the jail is a dump, and they immediately began moving 400 people into the federal prison in Lewisburg, Pennsylvania. But hilariously, the inspectors actually found that the treatment unit that most of the Jan Sixers are being held at was actually in compliance with the standards, was actually in far better shape than any of the other units that the marshals had denounced. Turns out they had it sweeter than everyone else, but they were still crying. One proud boy who had been moved to Lewisburg actually requested transfer back to the D.C. jail and one week later was back with the others. Yes, most of these Jan Sixers are being held in their own unit where they've developed cult-like rituals and they're being groomed by the right as these patriotic martyrs. The whole experience is sure to push them deeper into the reactionary rabbit hole. One Jan Sixer, Thomas Sibick, requested and was granted transfer out of there because he couldn't deal with the toxic environment. So they're in this reactionary echo chamber. Most have basically no interaction with other prisoners and they might not ever, really for their own protection. But the few that might actually be sentenced to some real time, I think the longest so far got five years, the dude who hit the cop with a fire extinguisher, I think they might be transferred to real prison eventually, and it's hard to say how they're going to make it, especially on their own away from their compatriots. They're hardcore back-to-blue supporters, this law and order and all of that, and many of them are former cops themselves, so they probably think that they're somehow above other prisoners. Well, they're going to have a very rude awakening in general population. Unless they're sent to like a camp or a low, it's likely many of them are going to check in and request protective custody, do the rest of their bid by themselves in the hole. People like Derek Chauvin or Dylan Roof. But remember, even then, on a long enough timeline, you could still get got. Like how Dylan Roof was beaten up on the way to the showers. It's also probable that they would seek protection from and fall in line with white supremacist gangs like the Aryan Brotherhood, with whom they share an obvious affinity. Because these groups, they're very organized, and they're in almost every prison, it's really an unaddressed problem that prison is basically a factory that fosters conditions that creates white supremacists from the same fake victimhood and racial resentment that these insurrectionaries are espousing now.
There is a potential these groups reinforce alliances and imprint lifetime commitments to their cause. Even if they're a bunch of ineffectual, ignorant clowns, they could become far more dangerous when they're released and returned to their fanatical hordes, now heralded as heroes. So obviously, prison can never be a solution to this problem, which is another reason why anti-fascists consistently refuse to work with the state. And if you look at what the jailed and arrested insurrectionists are saying, it is quite clear that even after a whole year, most of them regret nothing and are proud of their actions on Jan 6. They still buy the big lie. They still believe and talk about how patriots are rising up and going to overthrow this fake Biden and bring back Trump. Unfortunately, we are probably going to see more high-profile insurgent violence, as extremist researchers are noting that the level of activity and violent language emanating from far-right cycles is as high as it was just before the Oklahoma City bombing. Although much of their frustrations are directed to the federal government, or the mayors and governors of big cities and blue states, still they are on some Turner Diaries shit, imagining violence inflicted on BLM and anti-fascist activists who they see as race traitors and communists. So the DOJ announced on the anniversary of Jan 6 the formation of a new domestic terrorist task force, ostensibly to deal with this, and although carceral liberals have cheered it on, we really should be worried, especially about this whole both sides language around extremism that this task force seems to undertake. Everyone knows they always have and will continue to weaponize this against leftists and BIPOC communities, and probably a lot more so considering the long and well-documented racist history of the FBI. Look at the vagueness of the language to see the clearness of the problem. They say the biggest threats are from extremists, quote, driven by racial or ethnic beliefs, which they know it includes white supremacists, but also would include, quote, black identity extremists, a term invented by the feds under the Trump regime to delegitimize BLM activists so they could pursue more serious terrorist enhancements. They talk of, quote, anti-government sentiments, including militia and anarchists, as if they are the same thing. Although the FBI has previously stated that Antifa is an idea, not an organization, that has not at all slowed the continued targeted harassment of anti-fascists, as we have already seen the Department of Homeland Security do earlier this year by tri-blaming Portland riots on another new term, quote, violent Antifa anarchist-inspired individuals. A lot of the uprising arrests that happened during the height of Trump's rage when he sent feds to all the cities are still fighting these trumped-up charges with the full weight of Biden's Department of Justice. Just thinking of Daniel Baker, anarchist prisoner who was recently sentenced to 40 months for posting on Facebook about the need for armed self-defense against the right-wing coup that was bound to happen on Jan 6. Now, he never brought a weapon to any building, and his online hyperbolic statements pale in comparison to the mass calls of violence made by the hordes of Jan 6 riders, yet he got more time than all but one of them so far. Another person, 20-year-old Shamar Betts, was imprisoned for also putting up a Facebook post about an action in Champaign, Illinois, calling for people to get busy after the police murder of George Floyd. Some looting broke out, and the feds arrested him a week later under the 1968 Anti-Riot Act. They gave him four years, again for a Facebook post, in addition to an absolutely absurd $1.6 million fine. So to embrace the authoritative punitive power, to add to law enforcement's toolbox in any way, even if it is ostensibly also being used against the fascists, won't work to our advantage in the long run. The state is our enemy no matter which ruling class party wields the throne. Just like the GOP has, the Democrats will weaponize increases in security and anti-terrorist forces against anarchist and leftist movements. So we oppose the expansion of the DOJ terrorist task force. But fuck the DOJ for a second. Let's talk about ways everyday people have been resisting the MAGA menace. Anti-fascists have been documenting and confronting the rise of fascism since before Trump. And in the wake of Jan 6, it is good to see that more people are getting into anti-extremist work than ever. But in doing so, we need to be careful to not reinforce carceral anti-fascism. Abolitionists envision and practice accountability outside the prison system. Can we not imagine other tools to fight fascism except for the ones primarily used to oppress black and brown people? How do we demand freedom for all prisoners but also not wish to replicate the violence of the prison system against our enemies? 
In the wake of January 6, groups like Sedition Hunters have done a lot of online sleuthing, poring over the massive amounts of available video, creating hashtags for the riots until our true names are identified. It is, of course, helpful to know who these fuckers are. They should be exposed for their actions that day. But then, many people are tagging the FBI as if they are on the same side. Aiding a federal law enforcement investigation in order to put people in prison should not be the purpose of researching extremists. These are not long-term solutions, not likely preventative of future attacks, nor likely to de-radicalize their base. As we are seeing, the jailing of the Jan Sixers bolsters the MAGA mythology that Biden has reigned in the tyrannical New World Order and giving further cost to these wannabe patriot revolutionaries. What everyday anti-fascists are doing and have been doing is paying attention to what the far-right groups are doing in their area and around the country or world. And then taking action and putting some pressure on them to disrupt their organizing. Some ideas that allegedly exist include documentation or doxing of these local fascists, organizing call or email campaigns to get them fired or removed from office, flyering their neighborhoods or hangout spots, calling venues to get their events canceled, and of course, organizing counter-protests and showing up when they show up to the school boards or town halls with an alternative message. This does far more to put the fash on notice than to call the cops. And besides, we already know whose side they are going to be on anyway. While we are recording this episode, a major development has taken place. Unicorn Riot and Distributed Denial of Secrets has released about 500 gigs of leaks from Patriot Front chats and emails. The leaks were dropped as these white supremacists were in D.C., escorted by cops as they marched alongside the anti-abortionist organization March for Life. These leaks are massive and are now available for researchers to get into. Amazing. Included is documentation of their various hate crimes, embarrassing videos of their pathetic trainings, their internal communications which reveal plenty of identifiers, already leading to plenty of their members being exposed and doxxed. It shows the laughability of their security. It shows the deep connections Patriot Front has with Proud Boys. It shows that most of the members of Patriot Front self-identify as nationalist socialists, as Nazis, utterly destroying the ridiculous attempts at distancing by right-wingers who claim that Patriot Front is not real group but a Fed operation. It shows that if you are a Nazi, you will be exposed. It shows a lot, and we are excited to see the depth of shit to come up from this Patriot Front leaks. Most importantly, the leak shows that it is anti-fascists who are the ones doing the real work to handle the Nazi problem in this country. The U.S. government is committed to ignoring the threat besides slapping a few light sentences on the insurrectionists from Jan 6. But when Patriot Front comes to town, you will always see the cops leading the march and protecting them, allowing them the street, allowing them a safe escape when invariably people chase them down, shouting, chanting, and laughing at the pathetic sight of these white-hooded modern-day clan. The chuds are still active, standing back and standing by, just waiting for the next insurrection. They are back in full revolt again, railing all the goddamn time, worse now that we are entering this midterm election year. Best to stomp them down now before the hordes get too big again. I guess you could say it's time to... Smash Mega! <laughs> Hey, so have y'all played our game Smash Maggie yet? We just dropped a new version on the anniversary of Jan 6, in contemptful observance of that cursed day when America showed its ass. The story of the game is that a fascist plague sweeps the nation, entering a dark age dystopia of zombified Trump supporters that threaten the free world. The events depicted in the game are based on real-life occurrences during the Trump regime. It's satire, but it's also a call to action. We want people to reimagine these events as if it could have gone differently if people were mobilized to stop the plague of fascism before it spreads. The biggest update in this new version is the multiplayer feature. Firstly, you could plug in a gamepad and do local two-player co-op, which is way more fun taking on the brainwashed masses as a team. But there's also internet multiplayer, where you can jump on our game servers and play with or against others online. There's the regular modes like cooperative, deathmatch, capture the flag, we got laser tech. 
and you can compete in the high scores table. We're doing a monthly tournament to win prizes like zines and t-shirts. There's also one new level that takes place in Mars Alago, where Trump teams up with the rich man villain of the year, Elon Musk, in a plan to spread mega toxicity to Mars to escape a planet undergoing mass devastation by climate change. We're also pleased to say that Smash Mega is also now available on the Steam gaming platform. If you remember, Steam, just like Apple and Google, had previously banned us from their platform for some suspect justifications. Remember, for Google, it was political violence. For Apple, it was, quote, offensive references to targeted groups such as Mega. So Steam claimed it was for copyright infringement and initially wouldn't point to any specific violation. Obviously, we have full, fair use, public figures, parody, satire, etc. We don't even really have to get into it. But months after appeals and assurances that we don't have any copyrighted content, they eventually gave it the okay, and so we're on. And we're getting a lot more exposure, too, way more than our initial release last September, which, you know, says a lot about how these corporate platforms position themselves as gatekeepers as to what apps make it or not, and, of course, what people are even allowed to run on their devices in the first place. So we released the game, it's been fun playing multiplayer, and also reading the reviews and comments we've received so far. Now, most people thought it was a blast. Some also had constructive criticisms. But we also had some real hateful comments from these right-wingers, of course. You know, the usual ignorant shit. Rittenhouse supporters posting racist memes, talking about how they're going to report us, how we should be taken down, which is hilarious because cancel culture, right? These toxic parts of the gamer community, our game is calling them out. Mocking them, and now they're crying, and we knew that was going to happen. They're mad, it's cool. So what's next? Nobody believes the events on January 6th signaled an end to Trumpism. It only showed us how real the fascist threat has been, with no clear end in sight. What is the next battleground for the MAGA insurgents? How will they pivot and how best can we turn the tide? We will speculate on these trajectories in a future update. Smash MAGA, united front against fascism. New levels, enemies, features, new twists. So stay tuned. All right, so uh, thanks for being on the show. We're here. We got La Armada. We got Manilo and Paul from the band. Are you guys doing? 
Great. Great. Surviving in the city. I appreciate the opportunity, man. Of course, of course, of course. Thanks a lot for coming on here as well. We've been listening to your guys' songs from your upcoming album, Anti-Colonial Volume 2. That's coming out on uh, February 11th. That's yes, sir. That's Manilo's that, birthday, too. Oh, it's my shit. birthday, too, yo. Oh, no way. That's awesome. Happy birthday. Happy early birthday, yeah. man. You're getting excited. I mean, we planned it that way, bro. You we planned it that way. <laughs> Very excited, man. Uh, that's your guys' uh, own record label, Mal de Ojo? That's right. That's correct. Mal de Ojo, the evil, the evil eye record. That's our own label. We're operating under that name for the distribution of the record in Latin America and here in the U.S. Awesome. Congrats, man. It's, you guys had a few songs already out on your uh, band camp you can listen to right now, but it's pre-order available. Sounds great, man. You guys have been making music for like Thank 20 you. years. Congratulations. You're like seen veterans now. How do you guys feel? Hey, I was just telling Paul, I was. T I told Paul, you know, the first we played here in 2007 for the first time, I think. And like 90% of the bands that were around when we started playing Chicago shows, they're not really around anymore, you know? Barely, barely, only a handful of bands are still playing. So yeah, it feels like, it definitely feels like, you know, you're a veteran, but it also reminds you of always looking for new challenges and to push yourself to, to do something new all the time and, and just enjoy the process, you know? The, the yeah, secret oh, for yeah. longevity, I guess. I think we're, musically too, I think we're, we're still figuring it out. So we still feel in that sense, like we got a long, a long way to go. Yeah, man. It's always got to keep evolving. You know, you guys, new members of the band. I remember watching uh, when you joined, you know, when fucking your new singer and the drummer joined the band as well, too. It's, uh, yeah. you know, new musicians bring new elements to the band, you know. Um, yeah, it's definitely been a, a process of uh, learning from the process itself, rolling with the punches. And some way, somehow, we, we managed to maintain it cohesive and, in our opinion, create the best music we have as a band so far. Yeah. Now you guys have two guitar players, of course, but I think I saw at least one show, uh, Manilo, when it was just you. Well, it was just a three-piece, no guitar, just bass. Yeah, it was a, a three-piece experiment. <laughs> yeah, just uh, fucking crank the bass and, you know. Experimental days. Yeah. So I got some, like, serious type questions, you know, get a chance to talk about the various shit that's been going down. Obviously, you know, the live music scene has totally changed since the pandemic started. You know, as venues have a hard time hosting indoor shows, venues closing, some bands have been on hiatus or uh, calling it quits altogether. You guys, you know, how have you guys been faring during the pandemic as a band? It's been rough. It's been real rough. I mean, we personally have been lucky that we've been able to maintain, like, uh, uh, employment. So in that sense, like, at the end of the day, we've, we've had food and we've had shelter, but... On a band level and on a personal level, it's, it's been hard mentally, emotionally, because we were we were touring a lot before the pandemic. It seems like eight, ten years before it hit, we were on tour 100 days out of the year, 80 days out of the year. And then when that goes away so suddenly and unexpectedly, um, a lot of us felt it's almost like you lose your identity. Yeah. Um, it happened to me. I was like, okay, so who the fuck am I and what the fuck do I do, really? Like, am I just a dude with a job? Like, what what's going on here? 
So we took it as an opportunity to write music and also to practice, to work on our inner relationships. That's good shit, man. Take the opportunity to kind of think about some other stuff. It was definitely like a, a scary thing to see a lot of your peers going on hiatus or just just uh, quitting altogether. You know? Like a lot of people that you look up to or that you you were brought up together, like you you know you in the trenches touring, and then you next thing you know it was like yeah I'm not doing it anymore, I'm not playing anymore, I'm done. That's all done with. So it was a it was a very scary place to be mentally, and yeah it was. The only thing we could do was channel that energy into writing more music. How did you guys feel when, you know, over the summer, like last summer, once people started getting vaccinated, people started doing shows again. Did you guys get all anxious when shows started popping up again? Yeah, 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 no. Um, seeing live music for the first time was, was incredible. Playing for the first time was the first time I felt like myself again. But also... Also, there also there is like fear of missing out. Like we weren't quite ready in May when when shows started happening. So you're like, oh fuck, am I missing the small window that may close again? Like there's also a lot of that just to keep it real. Yeah, yeah. I mean, for, I think for 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 those of us who are like you know within the the scene and and with you know colleagues of us that are organizing shows and we have an insight on what's going on behind the curtain every show that you see is one step from being canceled all the time you know if, if every show that end, ends up happening is a miracle that it happened because with covid everything has to be planned way ahead nowadays and you just never know who's gonna get sick. You know, it's like a chain reaction. You know, somebody gets sick, next thing you know, the sound guy can't make it, or the, the fucking the, the venues close altogether, or the, the headlining band. We had a show in December with the Suicide Machines, and it got canceled like three days before the show because somebody got COVID. So in the blink of an eye, like something that you planned for three, four months in advance. It goes down the drain. That you already like you spent time. You already spent time on it to get prepared. You already spent money on it. You already canceled some other shit. Told somebody you weren't going to their birthday. Like all the shit yeah. to do that, and then you just gotta brush it off. Like oh, it got canceled. It is what it is. I've seen some venues uh, be doing uh, rapid tests for COVID at the door. I always wonder. Let's say the band shows up to the gig. And one of them has COVID there and then, you know, and everyone's like, sorry, everybody, you're in the middle of a, a super spreader event. <laughs> you know? That's brutal, dude. Especially like, imagine if you're on tour and you're like oh, five states away from where you, from where you, you live and that shit happens. Now you got to cancel everything. So you lose all that and you got to spend whatever you made to get back home. Like it's insane. It's a, it's a very rough time for, for independent artists. And it's it's also difficult because obviously you don't want any you don't want nobody getting sick, right? You don't want anybody to get sick. You have loved ones. You don't want to get sick yourself. You don't want people to say you're doing a super spreader. But the punk side of you, the DIY side of you, that always find a way to figure things out. Always yeah, that's for sure, man. You know, you always find a way to do things. You know, work around the, the what is, whatever is established. Once you go like, yo, fuck it, let's find a way to make a show. 
to make it safe. You know, everybody wear, wears a mask. Just do the vaccination card, you know. So it's, it's a tricky spot to be on because the, the, throughout the whole pandemic, I, I, I'm, I'm always, I always have that thought in the back of my head. Like, how can, how can we make this work? How can we make a show like even in a safe way? It's tricky for sure. Yeah, DIY shows, people are generally a lot better about um, wearing masks and uh, generally people are more conscious about the virus as opposed to a lot of kind of mainstream bars and stuff like that. You might go to a yeah. show at, and, uh, the, you know, people just don't seem to give a fuck at all. But, you know, of course, people doing the outdoor shows, generator shows, and you guys did uh, an outdoor fest. You did Burrito Fest this summer. Yeah. That's a way different situation than an indoor show. How was that? I mean, I was going to ask, what bands were you most excited about playing uh, at that fest or another show you've done recently? Oh, man, it was a great experience. You know, growing up in, in the Dominican Republic, a lot of these bands we grew up listening to, bands like Caipanes. Petacuba, uh, definitely. Petacuba. Panteon Rococo. Uh, yeah. Maldita you know, all these yeah. bands, they were like staples. And uh, whatever, you know, every time you talk about rock in Spanish, you had to mention those yeah. bands. It's funny because, uh, like, a lot of the people that, a lot of the English-speaking crowd that know us from, like, playing in the U.S., like, we would post, like, oh, we're playing this festival, and, like, nobody has a fucking clue, <laughs> for the most part, who those bands are. But for us, like Manny said, like, those bands are super are huge super in Latin America. Yeah, so for us, we're, like, stoked. Like, it's actually bands that, like, our parents know. You know yeah. what I mean? So... For us, it's like, hell yeah, let's do this. It was a great experience. I mean, it's great to play a festival like that. And, like, you know, the food is, like, authentic Mexican food. And, like, you know, we get to talk on stage in Spanish. And people understand. Like, it's just a good vibe. And it feels great to play a festival as a local band, too, you know, and, and kill it, too, on the way. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, man, that's awesome. Yeah, my brother went, I know, but Yeah, that was uh, sick by the way. Uh, yeah, he was there. Yeah. It's also cool it's also cool to be the heavy band in that festival, you know, like that it's not a heavy festival. Those bands are like alternative, pop rock, stuff like that. And we're the we were by far the heaviest band that plays. And <laughs> that's that's always a challenge, but it's a challenge that we really like. You know, like if we can get these people moving and we can get these people into the band and like we will have known that we we did a good job and it's a great challenge it's, it's just fun to be able to to kind of get up there and, and try to win over that crowd well you were y'all were tough though you know you performed well you know of course playing a three o'clock like slot is kind of difficult you know what i mean but uh i mean of course you're competing against a lot of headliners too though, but... it's hard yeah it's hard to play early like that but kind of used to it by now <laughs> yeah that's cool man you guys also did riot fest actually one time uh or another didn't you guys yeah 2017 or, or yeah, 2017 or 18 yeah uh what, what what do you guys uh take on uh your experience with riot fest you know uh maybe in comparison to rio fest or anything interesting things you want to say about uh you know riot fest 
If that's all right. <laughs> you know what we're talking about. <laughs> I'm just waiting on Paul. Uh, I, I think we're I think we're both waiting for for the other talk. Yeah. I mean, I don't want to. Yeah, really, you, you know, there's a lot of people say fuck Riot Fest so much that yeah. they made a beer. I, I want to talk about it. <laughs> I want to talk about it. Like our experience, personally, they treat us very well, very respectfully. Uh, we we know that the festival is not perfect. We know the festival needs to improve in a lot of ways. Um, for example, I'm, I'll give you an example. We did a fundraiser for Asato's daughter. Oh, yeah. You're going to take an Asato's daughter? We did daughter. at the beginning yeah. of the pandemic. Yes. They have, a, they have a, a community center in Douglas Park, right? Mm -hmm. So we, we spoke about how this festival that makes all this money and it's located in a in a community in, in probably one of the most underserved communities in Chicago. Right now, there's no money to be made. Ways where a bigger percentage of the profits stay in the community. How are we gonna develop communities? We're gonna develop communities with economic power, with more money. How are we gonna do that? We're gonna lock our, We're gonna hire local help. We're gonna we're gonna employ people in the community. We're gonna bring local vendors to the event for people to bring their, you know, whatever they, they sell their produce to, to sell it at the, at the space. But I mean, as far as that, they even spoke about maybe the, the possibility of, of uh, funding a, a school or a social center or something for the community in Douglas Park. But uh, I mean, as far as the artists, we will play whatever platform we can play as long as we can say what we are about and and as long as we can educate and bring the message that we bring to to anybody and especially the most uh misinformed or uninformed people because it's really easy to play the same punk venue for 20 people and talk about politics to, to everyone who already knows what we're talking about you know so in all the, the last thing I want to say about it is like that definitely we feel like we're opening a door for other bands to come, uh, immigrants, people of color, people from the you know the French communities to also be a part of, of a bigger event and that representation matters. You know, we are a band that we go on tour a lot with all white bills playing in an all white crowd every night singing in Spanish, it's, it's hard, dude. A lot of people will tell you, go fuck yourself. There's a lot of people there, they're like openly Trump supporters. So for a band like us to get on a stage like that, it, I, I'm sure is very important for a lot of people in this country, in this, in this city, especially. You know? Well said, man. You made a lot of great points. When I saw you guys in the bill, I'm just like, fuck yeah, because I normally look at the bill and I'm like looking at all these bands that like, I don't really care a whole lot about, you know what I mean? Right. And you guys are like, a lot of the bands, like Anti-Flag, you know, sometimes they're good, they're political bands, but not all bands are, and there's a lot you could say about the politics yeah. of Riot Fest and all that. Well, it, it hits different when you when you bring it up at, 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 with, a lo, uh, with a local level, you know what I mean? Because yeah. we go on stage, we went on, sta on stage, we talk about the Cobra Academy, we talk about Home and Square, we talk about things that are happening in the, in the community, in the very same community where the festival is happening. Exactly. You know? yeah. So it brings, it brings perspective on people. I, I, I like I, to think. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think we make a bigger difference by playing it than by not playing it. The only way we would not play it if it's like, oh, you got to tone it down or you can't say this or you, you can't say that. Or if it was like, I don't know, maybe if it was sponsored by like 
the U.S. military or some shit like that. Or, you know, like, yeah. no, we're not going to be about that. But you're giving us the freedom to do our thing, say what we got to say. You're making somewhat of an effort to support this community. Um, and you're going to treat us with respect. Hell yeah, we're going to go on that stage and we're going to crush it. And also, too, like, that's hard work, bro. Like, getting on getting on that shit was hard work. Like, yeah, nobody know, we gave us shit, here. dude. Nobody, nobody like... was shit. <laughs> yeah. You know, we weren't we weren't born here. We we weren't raised with oh, so and so is my neighbor. So we got on this fest. Like that happens a lot in the music scene. Yeah. yeah. Especially the higher you you climb, and we've been able to peek through windows where we see that that's a thing, like nepotism in a way, or just yeah, exactly. relationships from like I went to preschool with this guy. Like that's not our case. No. Um, you know, we came here. We were already in our twenties when we came to this country. So the fact that we got on there as a band that sings in Spanish, as a band that was up there doing fucking guttural screams, you know, like all that shit, like, fuck. You know? That means something to us, and it means something to to some to people like us. And, you know, that's why, like, a lot of people respect you over the years, because you have held this consistently. You've always been about that life. And, uh, you know, you've done... You know, so much for the, the scene in Chicago, you know what I'm saying? Like, uh, more than any of these, like, other, like, you're talking about uh, the entrenched, like... Um, Punk elite. Yeah. Who ain't done... <laughs> the city, oh, they're from Chicago. They ain't done shit for the city, you know? Yeah. Hey, nobody can say we haven't played benefit shows for 10 weekends straight, you know, for mm -hmm. five summers in a row. Uh -huh. This is definitely the, something that should be talked about. I, I, I appreciate that you brought it up because we talk about it a lot. And regardless, even if we don't play, we go, we attend Riot Fest, right? We, we, I like to go see the band. But I, I also like to see the community and the environment outside and the hustle and the people selling hot dogs and, and you know what I mean, like water, whatever they're selling. You know, I think people like parking. Like with with a private parking spots, you know, renting their parking spots and shit. So I definitely see people like with the opportunity to hustle a little bit of money every year. And then we were just talking about like, yo, I see the community bumping, you know, trying to make some money and shit. But a lot more could be done. I really believe a lot more could be done. A lot more can be done. A lot more can always be done. Yeah, man, you guys are doing it though. Speaking of the parking thing, I remember there was some controversy with Riot Fest over city uh, city officials was selling uh, public oh. parking lots to like Riot Fest attendees, like Alderman uh, Cardenas. Is that the guy? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, they put the, the fence around it and people spray paint, and then they shut the park down for like days, even a week afterwards. Yeah, because it's a public park. You know, the neighborhood uses it. So, hey, you're going to ask about because uh, uh, you know another thing that people are doing during the pandemic instead of shows, making music videos. You guys have always been making yeah. very cool music videos. Um, one that I was going to ask about recently is this uh, Checkmate Humanity from Anti-Colonial Volume 2 coming out. That's a cool-ass video. I saw the interview with Tatiana about uh, the collaboration. How'd you guys, uh, I mean, how'd you guys put it together? All her, bro. All her. <laughs> All praises to her. Yeah. Uh, John Kediak, the, the producer, the director. Jonathan Stale, the director of, of photography. She's a, she's a Dominican contemporary dancer. And she's based out of Berlin. And we got to see a piece 
a movie that she did called Quisqueya. And it's about uh, racism and colorism in the Dominican Republic and Haiti. And it blew our mind. And so we always wanted to have a visual of one of our songs that would kind of represent the rhythm. So people would like understood where we're coming from, the Afro kind of Caribbean rhythms that we throw into punk. So when we saw her piece, we decided to approach her to see if she wanted to do it. And she, she was game. She really wanted to. And it's our favorite piece of visual art that we've done. Um, it's also the best one because we didn't have to do shit uh, for it. And making videos is a pain in the ass. So basically, we told her more or less the meaning of the song, kind of what we wanted. And then we just let her do her thing. And she came to us like, look. And we were like, yeah, it's perfect. We made no changes to it. Yeah, and no, it's also a way to collaborate with other peers and people who are doing different arts, you know? It's like, it's a way for us to apply what we learned in the punk scene, you know? I was like, how we, you know, we work together through mutual aid. If we're gonna make all these videos, I'm gonna have my friend who's a videographer, I'm gonna have my friend who's a director, I'm gonna have my friend who dances. And we all gonna come up together, you know? There's a lot of ego in like other other areas of art. We notice that a lot. We always we always talk about it because when you play in a punk band and you experience rejection every day, right? It's like normal. Like oh, oh like no, oh nobody's watching your set, whatever, you're still gonna have fun, you know. But it's not the case in other areas of art. We play we came to notice, right? Yeah. But we try to apply what we learn, you know, working together, the DIY style into the videos, and it's going to work. It worked out really good. We, we created a lot of good material, and we're really happy with it. Yeah, man. Um, so you guys got the album out. It's coming out in fucking, like, um, three weeks, and you guys got the show at the mm -hmm. Coke Lounge. The, that's the 26th, the release show? That's yeah. Correct. I'm going to check it out. That's uh, the thing, man. We're, we're ready to play, bro. Like, we're ready to play. It's been two years where we hardly been able to play. Like, we want to get on that stage, man. Are you guys going to try to do a tour in the summer? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we have a tour in Europe that's booked. That's been booked. Been booked for... since the beginning, since before the pandemic, bro. Yeah, it's been booked since 2019, and it keeps being pushed. So hopefully that happens. And if it doesn't happen, then we'll just do, like, a U.S. tour. Awesome. When's that at? When are you guys going to start on that tour? The European thing is supposed to start at the end of June and go to the middle of July. Uh, yeah, festivals, shows on our own, shows with other bands. Europe is, is great to tour, man. The, the hospitality is way better. The food's way better. Uh, it's, just a great, it's a great experience. Where are you most excited about going? Me? Like... I like being in Spain. We we trying to also go to South America this year for the first yeah, time. Yeah, we went to South America this been. year. And you know, we had a lot of people who have been listening to our music for years there, and and a lot of people are digging the new music too. Places like Chile, Brazil, Argentina. We've never been there. A lot of people fuck with our music down there, and we can't wait to go. We're gonna try to go this year. Yeah, that's cool. We touched on so much shit, man. Um, anything else you guys want to put out there as we uh, get to the end of the interview? Hey, shout out to the working people, all the people, all the people that kept everything fucking running through this pandemic, bro. All the immigrant labor, 
all the people that got up in the fucking morning, maintenance workers, fucking mechanics, delivery people, the, uh, the medical staff, all the people who fucking make, make sure everything was running, up and running, and risking their fucking life every day. You know, we appreciate you. And let's fucking, let's try to play some music, man. <laughs> man, let's that's play some up, music, man. bro. That's quite a shout out. Shout out to the working class, man. <laughs> yeah, do all the work. Hey, it's true, bro. It's like I got I, yo. I I went out there every motherfucking day, you know. Even in the first days of the pandemic, when everybody was like chilling at the crib, and all I saw was people risking their life, breathing to that, you know. What I mean, leaving their kids at home, you know, risking bringing a, a getting somebody sick at home to keep everything running. And, and it's like, you know, we talk about all the, oh, the heroes, the heroes, this, these people are the heroes. You know, the people who fucking showed up to work every day to make sure everything was up and running, bro. Yeah, you're right, man. So uh, a lot of people are realizing this. We've seen people rising up against, you know, racism, capitalism, fascism these last couple yeah. of years. Do you guys think it's encouraging? Uh, does it give you guys hope for the future? Or do you think we're all doomed anyway and we're all fucked no matter what happens? No, I mean, if you if you fucking with politics, radical politics, you always gotta feel that there's hope in there. You can't you can't turn bitter, bro. You can't be like, oh, we're doomed. It's never, it's never gonna happen. This is exactly the point that we're doing this, you know. Uh, but it definitely shows that we're disposable for the for the elite. The, the working people are there, they don't give a fuck about us. They don't give a fuck if we get sick, if we die there, as long as the profits keep showing up and turning in. At the same time, I'm not going to let that shit discourage me for not fighting and not doing what I came here to do, you know, what I, what is my calling. And what a lot of people, I always say this in interviews, like there's a lot of people that are boots on the ground every day working to make a positive contribution. Social workers, school, school teachers, you know, activists, whatever you want to call it. The problem is they don't have the resources and they don't get the exposure that they need to effectively do their job. You know, it, I, I'm tired of people saying, no, nothing's going to change. Nobody cares. And there's a lot of people working every day and, and, and actually doing great things. You know? And you know this. You, you, you guys both know this. Yeah, definitely. People are on the move, man, you know. It's kind of disrespectful to them to get discouraged. Yeah. And yeah, like you were talking about the burnout earlier and stuff, but there's also, you know, a whole new crop of punks, man. You know what I mean? There's hope because the youth ain't taking no shit no more, man. Yeah, it is true. It is true. Like, it's definitely trending in the right direction in a lot of ways. My hope is that enough people catch on in time before we, I don't know, destroy the earth. Shit. <laughs> I don't think so, man. The earth's too strong. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> true. <laughs> It just needs to wipe us out, and it'll it'll be fine. Well, um, let's leave on a good note. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, thanks a lot so much for coming on here, you guys. Uh, it's been great talking with you guys. Thanks a lot. Much respect. Much respect to you both and to the respect rest. Respect and love. Right back to you. Right back to you. Shout out to Smash Mag at the game. <laughs> shout out to book to book to prisoners. The America right. that we know and love doesn't exist anymore. Massive demographic changes have been foisted upon the American people. And they're changes that none of us ever voted for and most of us don't like.
Pandemo. <laughs>